Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard. First and foremost, to all of you that have written me and uh, Facebooked me and Messenger pigeoned me or whatever you do to get a hold of me and get messages to me, it's been amazing. You guys, your comments are incredible. And uh, sometimes certain things that you say, like they'll start off and it'll be like uh, the guest you had on. I, I hated that guest and I've always, or I haven't liked this or I haven't liked that about the person you're interviewing. And then I'm like reading and I have like anxiety in my stomach and then it'll turn around and say, but I learned a lot about that person and I, I, I was wrong about that person and I really feel good about them now and uh, and I didn't know those things. So it's good that these interviews and these uh, these podcasts are, are, are making an impact to you as they are to me. I am uh, very, very excited about uh, uh, the show today because... Today, uh, I don't get a chance to uh, interview uh, many attorneys, and uh, my guest today, Henry Bushkin, is an amazing man, not only an attorney, but a man who, in many ways, was part attorney and part manager, part agent, part publicist, part confidant, part best friend to, in my mind... uh, one of the greatest uh, American treasures and worldwide treasures that there ever was that was a living human being, and that's Johnny Carson. And today uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to talk about uh, his career and his journey 
and how he got to where he is today. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the legend as well. But first, I'd like to tell a little story that sort of is a six degree of separation to my guest in my own life. Um, I uh, started uh, going to college in Boston, and I quickly was involved in uh, running a comedy club called Play It Again Sam's, which was a very weird place in a sense. It had four entities inside. It had a a pub where there was a, a guitar player in a corner underneath a television set who played inside the bar and entertained that little small area of people. There was a restaurant in the middle. There was a movie bar on the other side, which was larger that had couches and tables. And this is before DVD and video or digital entertainment. Uh, the owner of the club would, um, he would rent films and he would play them. Like for instance, if there's a movie that you know of, let's say that's coming out on DVD or released on whatever digital platform. And you know, it's going to be released in so many weeks after the movie takes it's taken out of the theaters back then this guy hired the actual movies and had them sent to him and played them in there for the people so you could see these movies and there was no charge and he would serve food and alcohol and and then downstairs was the comedy club which i ran uh which was a really amazing place which for those of you who know me and know about me and you know i had shows with everybody from bob goldthwaite to dennis leary to Anthony Clark to Lenny Clark to Paula Poundstone to Jonathan Katz, who created Dr. Katz, uh, Janine Garofalo. And um, one uh, particular artist that I would do anything in the world to book was the first comedian that I'd ever, ever um, seen in my life alive. And that was Stephen Wright. And... Um, Stephen was the kind of uh, artist that was a lot like he was on stage. He was very quiet, very reserved, um, didn't say a lot. And, um, and maybe that's why every single comedian in Boston had more respect for him than anybody else, because he was a man of little words, but huge actions. And his comedy was extraordinary and like no other comedy that anybody had ever seen before. And here we were in Boston being witnessed to, and I was being witnessed to, and I would pay him more than any other comedian for a set on the stage at Played Against Sam's, which at the time in the eighties was $45. And and Boston was a unique town for comedy because it was born out of the bars. So when you go to see comedy now in whatever city or country you're in, normally what happens is, is that there's a bar outside of the comedy club or the venue that's sort of a service bar in an area. And you actually have a showroom where there's no distractions. It's just a person on stage and the audience. But in Boston, when comedy started and the boom happened, the comedy boom happened, you had comedy clubs that were being built within bars, and it was a big sports city. 
So you were in a situation where you would have to perform sometimes and a Celtics game would be playing in the background or a Bruins game or a Red Sox game. And a lot of times they didn't turn off the volume that much. And even when they did turn off the volume, you'd be doing your comedy and all of a sudden there'd be like an enormous uproar, like literally like picture yourself in a hockey arena when your home team scores a goal. And that's what you'd be doing. So you'd be in the middle of a, you'd be in the middle of your act, and the front of the room would be listening, and the back of the room would be cheering when a goal happened or when Larry Bird hit the winning shot or whatever. And, but it made the comedians tougher and greater, and we were starting to get more respect in Boston for the kind of comedy we had. But there was one moment that happened that turned the whole city around and helped comedy put comedy on the map and I remember it well because I had heard the rumors that a guy who never came to Boston to see anybody Peter LaSalle who was a producer on the Tonight Show he wasn't actually the producer who normally looked at talent that was Jim McCauley but Peter LaSalle was in Boston to look at uh colleges for his child and so he was coming in and the call came in that he was going to stop by a comedy club in Boston to see some talent and he decided to go to a place in Inman Square Cambridge called the Ding Ho which was a Chinese restaurant slash comedy club with a bar inside with the television on in Inman Square Cambridge And he decided to go there. He told the people in charge to put a lineup together. And the lineup was put together with comedians like Jack Gallagher, who was great back then, and Lenny Clark, and enormous Boston talents like Don Gavin and Steve Sweeney, who would draw. Steve Sweeney was a guy who would perform three shows on a Friday night in a 400-seat venue and sell out every single show and he never had a television credit it was a it was an area that was just booming for comedy and they really rallied around their own bob goldthwaite was asked to perform on the show and one of the other people that was asked to be on the show was stephen wright peter lasalle comes to see the lineup and watches everybody does well he says, thank you. He walks off into the night. He calls Stephen Wright. He says, I'd like to fly you out. You're going to be doing the Tonight Show. And he was asked to do the show on a Friday. And back then, there's no cell phones. There's no email. Stephen Wright hangs up. He's stunned. He calls his parents. He calls every comedian he knows. He calls every friend he knows, every single person to tell them about this call. No one is home. No one is home. He can't reach anybody. But the fact is, one of our own in Boston was doing comedy on The Tonight Show, the greatest, most validating thing that a comedian could ever have. Because back then, there was nothing else for you to do except maybe daytime shows like Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas, but nothing with the reach of the millions and millions of people that Johnny Carson could reach. I remember this well because I had won a contest in Boston 
called Host of Evening Magazine, where I had written in a postcard with like over 100,000 people, and they chose me, and I went in this competition, and I won the competition. The co-host won these Evening Magazine things where, you know, aired at 7.30 in Boston, and I won, and I won a... uh, Nine, I'm sorry, a 25-inch television, a video camera, a watchman, a Sony watchman. And here it was. I would found out that Stephen Wright was doing The Tonight Show on this Friday, and I wanted to be in a situation where I could share that with my audience that was at the comedy club. But there's no cable. There's no plasma televisions back then. All I have is the rabbit ears on the television, and I'm wondering how am I going to do this, but I don't care. That Friday, I go in my house, which I lived across the street from the comedy club. I unplug my television. It weighs about 75 pounds. I pick it up, and I carry it, and I'm walking through the streets of Boston across the street to play it again, Sam's. Down the stairs, I get a stool, and I put it on the stool, and I plug it in to Channel 4, which was NBC. And I bring my Sony Watchman, and I got that to Channel 4 in the dressing room. And I'm ready to share this with the audience in Boston. And (laughs) I remember the host was a comedian named Jay Charbonneau, and I told him I would give him the light and tell him to get off when we're going to show it. And we announced to the crowd that we were going to show one of our own, Stephen Wright, going on The Tonight Show. And in the middle of the show, stopped the show, turned up the volume, again, put the microphone next to the television. That's all I had. It was a little snowy. And that crowd of about 75 people on Friday watched Stephen Wright do The Tonight Show for the first time, along with myself and the other comedians. And... It was a moment that I'll always remember for my entire life because Johnny Carson had a system with comedians that was well-documented but never spoken. If you were a comedian that went on and he never wanted to see you again, he would just say, thank you, nice job. If you were a comedian that went on and he wanted to see you again, he would say, thank you, nice job, and he would reach up his hand and give the okay sign like that to the comedian. Those were the two main things that would happen 99.999% of the time. But there was one rare thing that happened this particular night that in the history of the show, total in the 30 years of the show, had only happened five times. And that was at the end of Stephen Wright's set, when he said, thank you, good night, Johnny Carson looked over to him, and he didn't necessarily say, thank you, nice job. He didn't give the okay symbol. He gave another symbol. Come over here. Come on over, Stephen. Sit down with me. And he invited Stephen Wright to the couch. Something so rare for a comedian. And 
that night, what I took from that was this. If you're any artist at all, I don't care what you do. I don't care what profession you're in. What Stephen Wright did that night as an underdog was he was just completely undeniable and he blew everybody away with original content, original ideas, and original performance. And if you can do that, you will rise to the top of your profession, whatever you're doing. I don't care if you're a comedian, a musical act, or if you're a lawyer. If you can do things that are outside the box and you get your moment, make sure that when you get your moment that you do everything in your power to blow people away. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very exciting times here today at the uh, home uh, compound here. Um, uh, This is going to be an interview like no other that I've uh, probably given before. Uh, And it's not even going to be about me. It's going to be about my guest and his experiences. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Um, He is known as being an attorney. But for the purpose of this uh, introduction, I will tell you that this book that he's written entitled Johnny Carson, the New York Times best 10 books of the year in 2013 and a number one New York Times bestseller. Uh, The author who sits before me for 18 years was Johnny Carson's personal legal advisor, fixer, confidant and very close friend. In the years since, he's continued to practice law, but he can't do that anymore in Los Angeles because when you write a book that blows people away, people aren't expecting things. It's a new career. So I'm sure he'll probably tell you about the next book he's writing. During Carson's run of The Tonight Show, he became affectionately known as Bombastic Bushkin. One of the things that struck me uh, 
the best career advice he ever received? Don't back down, Tom Petty. We have uh, so many things to talk about. Uh, I'm not going to go any more with this introduction because you guys don't understand how many pages I have. It's incredible what this guy's done and what's he been a part of. And rather than waste it on the introduction, I'd rather keep it all for you guys. Please welcome my guest today, Henry Bushkin. Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, my. Thanks for the great uh, remarks. I appreciate it. Oh, we got more to come. You know, you can always tell when there's somebody who I really want to be here with the level of times that I reach out and email and try to get a hold of somebody. And for you, I really thought that I would never have you here. And you're very important to have me here because in my office, I have one of Johnny Carson's cue cards. He's a huge part of my life and he's a huge part of the world's life. And he's a huge part of your life as well. Uh, not just positive things in your life, but also some very difficult and very, very uh, tough times in your life. But before we get into that, I think what's important, because you're a guy who, like I said, you made your mark, you came from nowhere, similarly to the Stephen Wright story and many, many people in our business, they seemingly come from nowhere to get where they are. So let's go way, way back and tell me the point when you actually didn't know you wanted to be an attorney and what was the moment where you came to your uh it came to you that you wanted to be a lawyer and you wanted to be in the profession and then the second question to that is is that when you thought about being in this profession and, and law were you just thinking a different kind of law or were you thinking entertainment law that's a lot of questions sorry <laughs> well to begin with uh i i went to lehigh and graduating from lehigh was the beginning of the vietnam war so I enlisted in the Navy uh, to join what was then the Officers Candidate School to become an officer in the Navy because we all felt we were going in the military one way or another. And being from the Bronx and being Jewish, my mother had a heart attack that I was actually going to go into the service because Jewish boys didn't do that, according to Jewish mothers. So I, I actually joined up, but... One of the outs uh, of signing up for the Navy was if you continued on to graduate school in those days. So <clears throat> my mother and father, in effect, forced me, if you will, to go to law school. <clears throat> I, I enlisted after law school, but this was so getting they, to law they school. They forced you to go. So in other words, there were no other professions that were interesting or whatever they wanted I law. I could have been a doctor. I could have been an account. Anything to, to continue school and not join the military. It was just one of those, you know, it's a Jewish thing. God, well, I, my, I'm Jewish, so I, I, I know that you, my mother wanted me to be a hospital administrator. <laughs> I said, why do you want me to be a hospital administrator? Well, she says, you know, in the soap operas, they seem to be really important people. So I went to law school and I thought I was gonna be a securities lawyer. Now, interestingly enough, I spoke at the Clinton Library last week in Little Rock, and the person who invited me to speak was a good friend of mine in law school who happens to be a federal judge in Little Rock, appointed by Clinton. He was the chief judge of the Eastern District of Arkansas on the federal bench, and he and I were buddies in law school. We were both on scholarship, and in those days, Xerox was brand new. You know, it was a gigantic machine, if you remember. Yeah. 
And and as part of our duties getting a scholarship, we had to do some work. So we manned the Xerox room. He could fill this room up. That's how big the machine was. And he and I became friends. And uh, I was at the Clinton Library, and he introduced me. And he said, as, lo- as way back in law school, Bushkin wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. Now, that was just showbiz personified, because I had no idea of being a showbiz lawyer. It was just happenstance, just like things like Stephen Wright happenstance. I happened to join a little firm that happened to be an entertainment firm because I had some expertise in copyright law. And that's what got me into entertainment. And that's what eventually led to Carson becoming a client. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So um, you're doing that. And how long before you meet uh, Carson? Like how many years are you practicing law and doing what you're doing in the firm? I'm three years a lawyer Got when, I meet, when I meet Johnny. Are you married yet? I am. Got it. And so this is an interesting story because you're asked to uh, meet Johnny Carson uh, regarding something that was illegal and against the law and something that people have gone to jail for for more than a year. And your first meeting with him that I want you to talk about is a situation where you're being asked to advise and help with something that's illegal. And not just you are involved in it, but there are several professional people involved in this operation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Certainly. The One of the people is a fellow by the name of Joe Mullen, who's still a private eye in New York, and a very well-known guy, and he and I and uh, two other fellows and Johnny went to this apartment where he suspected his then-wife was carrying on an affair, and I was hired. That was Joanne. That was second wife Joanne, that's correct, and I was hired not for any reason other than to possibly keep him out of jail if the police showed up. I wasn't there to assist in any taking of anything. I was there just in case the cops showed up. But, you know, fortunately, they didn't. I'm not a lawyer, but that would be an accomplice. In your world, in my world, I was the lawyer. (laughs) But if he was arrested and they did ask you under oath, did you know about this planning and were you a part of it? What would you say? I would say absolutely not. I was asked to go along on, on some trip across town three blocks actually so what you're and saying investigated an apartment that he presumably owned so what you're saying paying the rent. so what you're saying is attorneys often uh, don't tell the truth no attorneys oftentimes figure out a way to to deal with a circumstance I mean Carson was doing nothing wrong you understand it was his wife who was carrying out an illicit affair with an apartment that he effectively was paying for. Now, it turns out that his secretary was in cahoots with the wife, and the, the lease was in the secretary's name. So obviously, her husband, who was then a producer of The Tonight Show by the name of Rudy Tejas, he had to go because she had to go. That's what I entered into in Carson's world at that moment. All right. So let's, let's just let's talk about this a little bit. This is fascinating. So at the time that this happened, 
uh, Johnny was doing the Tonight Show from New York, from 30 Rock, right? 30 That's Rock correct. of Fella Plaza, which now um, Jimmy, uh, Fallon Jimmy Fallon is... The same studio. Same studio. Correct. How unbelievable is that? As Jimmy Fallon so eloquently says, uh, there are less people that have done the Tonight Show as a talk show host than there have been that have walked on the moon. And, and I think Jimmy Fallon's doing a terrific job myself. I enjoy watching him. I think the guy is very talented. I think he's very creative. And I think it's getting energy now that the show lacked for a lot of years. It really did. And I think it ties into this podcast when we talk about you, what you did for Johnny Carson, who came from nowhere, from Nebraska to do it. And Jimmy Fallon, who came from Albany, New York, and and honestly uh, is doing things that no one else is doing in late night. And again, what we talked about, if you can if you can deliver those kind of performances in any profession you're in, you're 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 in a position to win. So at the time, Johnny had been the host of The Tonight Show for how many years when you got involved? Uh, just about eight. Eight years. Okay. So this is something that's interesting. So he breaks into uh, his wife's apartment to find evidence. Did they find evidence that she was uh, having an affair? Of course. The apartment was furnished with all his old furniture. It was populated with all of his old mementos. And it was populated with pictures of his wife and others. Not him, but others. So, yeah, we had plenty of evidence. And, and you have to remember... No, but you can't use that evidence. We can, but you have to remember that New York then was a... Uh, adultery was basically the only grounds for divorce. And this was New York in 1970. So you really needed proof of adultery. And this was sufficient proof of adultery. And we got in because the manager of the building let us in. We didn't break any locks. We didn't uh, force any doors. He actually let us in. What uh, What I don't understand is this. You said it wasn't illegal to get this information in the apartment, but the apartment was not in Johnny's name. He paid for the apartment, but the apartment was leased in someone else's name. So I just want to have our audience understand how you can go in a court of law and say that we got because now when you talk, you see any you try to get any evidence that was gotten illegally or not by the proper channels and it's not admissible. How was this information admissible? You're overthinking it. That's that's what's happening here. It never was an issue. The the evidence was in. It was never raised that this was an illegal search or seizure or anything like that. The fact is that the evidence was sufficient to get him a divorce. It took two years after that because of hostilities between the parties. But nonetheless, what you say may be accurate in other instances, but in, in our case, it was never an issue. Now, here's an interesting thing you said, and again, I don't mean to spend too much time on this, but I think it's fascinating. You said the only way to get a divorce was if you could prove adultery, which today there's two grounds for divorce. How am I so educated in this? There's irreconcilable differences and insanity. Well, and, and I'll just say this. And the insanity plea in the history of California law has never been upheld. So every divorce in California 
is irreconcilable differences. Well, first of all, every state is different. New York is totally different than California. And this was New York then. California is a no-fault state. You don't need any reason for divorce. You just go in and you get it. They can't refuse you a divorce. Now, you may have issues about property and about alimony and, and child support and so on. But the divorce will always be granted. In New York, you couldn't do that in 1970. You needed absolute proof of adultery or the differences had to be such that psychiatrists had to testify that the parties just couldn't live together. And that was almost an impossible standard. So it's well documented that Johnny Carson was devastated by finding out that his wife was having an affair with a professional football player. Frank Gifford. Frank Gifford. Incredible. Uh, I'm just thinking of that Kathy Lee moment when she found out that he was having an affair. Uh, and um, I don't believe that was the... Uh, was that that wasn't the same affair, was it? Well, it, when it, she when she announced on television, she was crying on television. No, on... no, no. The, the, the interesting thing here is that as a result of the book, the the Joanne Carson affair with Frank Gifford, which took place forty four years ago now, became front page news of the New York Post for three days, and this was a forty three year old affair with a guy who was dead. Okay, now Frank Gifford at the time said, "I don't remember. I can't remember." Kathy Lee Gifford said it never happened, but this was 14 years before he ever met her. So it'd be hard for her to deny something that he can't remember. That's the lunacy of what went on here. But the affair you're talking about was one that How bad place. did Joanne Carson have to be in bed for him not to remember? <laughs> well, she denies it too, of course. And she denies the apartment as well. But look, the, the pleadings in New York were pretty specific as to what we found they were filed, and, and actually, it's the cases in Bronx County. Uh, what was the divorce was granted in Bronx County, as it turns out. So the the affair you're talking about took place long after they were married, when Frank shacked up at the Regency Hotel with an airline stewardess for a week. That page page six of the New York Post, right? This made page one, front page. So, but but the power of Carson. The power of Carson now. What I don't understand is that he's upset about it, yet during their marriage, he wasn't um, faithful the entire time. So how could he be upset when he wasn't faithful to her? Well, you see, you then have to talk about the degree of upset. It lasted a day and a half. You know, that's how long it lasted. He was over it after a day and a half. So, yeah, he was shaken. He was humiliated. He was tormented by the scene. But uh, the next night, uh, you know, at Jilly's Bar in New York, he, he got over it. You know, he, he, he wept over it. He, 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 you know, he cried over it and he was over it. How many times had Frank Gifford done The Tonight Show before that he found out that he was having an affair with his wife? I, I have no, no idea if he ever did it. How many did times before? did he do it after? I have no idea. <laughs> okay, no worries. All right, so you're, you're involved in that. You get involved in that. And as oftentimes happens, you know, you must be doing something around that time besides just making sure that if something went down, you'd protect them. Because a guy 
of that person's stature in life and where he's going in his life and his career doesn't then hire somebody to be his attorney just because they're hanging around to make sure nothing happens and if something does happen, you'll protect them. What is it that you did that you feel was so extraordinary that separated you from the pack of all the different attorneys who most likely wanted to be involved in his life but weren't that got you in the game? I don't think I did anything extraordinary, to tell you the truth. I think I, I had the good fortune, just like your friend in Boston, had the good fortune to be there on a night, you know, when Carson had no one to turn to. His manager was not interested in his uh, concerns. His wife was just as bad as he was in terms of the marriage. They were both drinking. There was uh, there were bitter fights over the years. He was carrying on with other women. She was carrying on. It was not a good marriage, and it was uh, evident to me once I got involved that it was never a good marriage. And so the hostility that I saw came about after they were separated. And to answer your question, he said, I'm getting a divorce. You handle it. Now, he could have hired any divorce lawyers. But you weren't, you weren't. I had a, never done a divorce. You weren't a divorce attorney. Why would it. Never done a divorce. Why would a guy with so many advisors hire somebody who had no experience in that area of life? Because he had no one he could trust. He didn't have a lawyer he could trust. He didn't have a manager he could trust. He didn't have a wife he could trust. He didn't have a business manager he could trust. So he was a big star and sort of flailing. You got to give yourself some props here, okay? He didn't trust anybody. Why would he trust you? Anybody could have come there, a security guard. Are you saying that if anybody showed up, he would have just said, hey, you're going to do my divorce? No, I don't think so. No, so what so. is I mean, it that he, you were... He had, look, he had moments with me that he felt he could trust me. And obviously, uh, it wasn't that I was representing to him that I was a divorce lawyer. I was, I was an entertainment lawyer doing mostly music work. That's what we did in my firm. Jerry Weintraub, who you may know, was a client of ours. Of course. We we represented Grand Funk Railroad. I hope you guys may remember Grand Funk of Railroad. Of course, the loudest band in history. Okay. So so I was doing entertainment work, not divorce work. But the the guys in my firm had done divorces and, and I explained to him that they would help me and they did. And and the, the the trust or the confidence began to grow, and and it didn't happen overnight. It probably took two years before I think he felt completely uh, confident in talking to me as a lawyer and as a friend. Meaning that he had moved to California by 1972, and it was then that he asked me to come out. And join him. And you were married, and you had to talk to your wife and say, "Listen, you know, honey, we gotta, uh, we have this opportunity." If she had said, "I, I like it in New York. I want to stay in New York," what would you have done? She did say that, but we moved. <laughs> I mean, she was unfamiliar with with Los Angeles. I had been coming out regularly. She had not been out before. Before we moved into the house that we moved into, she hadn't set foot in Los Angeles. So she was nervous, but quickly got into it. And were you part of a firm then or on your own? 
So I was with my own firm in New York when he then moved to California. That's the one that you formed with uh, uh, Arnold Copelson yep. and Jimmy Walsh. Yes. yes, got it. And so, and who were their big clients at the time? Well, Jimmy had Joe Namath, and uh, Arnold Copelson was a bank lawyer and a uh, uh, motion picture lawyer. Got it. And so you come out here to L.A., uh, The Tonight Show comes out here, and... Um, hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing... Or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Take me through this next period of time um, when The Tonight Show came out here and uh, sort of a new set of problems because one of the things that I read in the book was the fact that something that a lot of us know about celebrities and it's hard for us to believe because perception we always think is reality. So here's a guy who's like the biggest household name in television in our country, yet in the two years that you he started trusting you, you started realizing that, you know, there was all this crazy stuff happening with wives, affairs, his affairs, drinking, um, carousing, and the fact that these people who were working with his money, his manager, and everybody around him were making decisions that he wasn't aware of and he didn't make himself aware of. He sort of like sort of lived away from that and trusted these people. And you came in and in those two years, you realized that there was a lot of stuff going on that was uh, really bringing him down. And it shocked you how little he actually had. Can you talk about that? Yeah, certainly. The the divorce required that I go through all of his assets because New York, the judge made the decision as to wh who got what. And so it was very important to go through all the assets. Joanne Carson had no assets, for example. So everything was coming from Johnny's side. And uh, th that that got me into his business affairs with his manager. It got me into business affairs with NBC, what his contract was. It got me into business affairs to what his uh, agency uh, commissions were and how screwed up that was. So And, so and it, 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 it all said to me, this is totally screwed up. And so talk about the steps you took 
one by one to help him get to the point where he can control his own destiny, his own finances, and at least have those worries put aside. Talk about that and how much money he was making a year back then in his ninth and tenth years of the show coming here and and what you did and uncovered with the manager and the agency and how you rectified things. I know a lot of questions. It's another simple question. <laughs> the well, the answer is that working backwards, he was making forty million a year when he retired in nineteen ninety two. So the the circumstance in 1967, for example, when the tax rate in the United States combined with New York was 90% of your income. So if you were making 100000 a week, effectively you'd be taking home 10000 a week. That's just the way it was. So in those days, everybody deferred income. So Silly as it sounds, Johnny was one point was making a hundred thousand a week, but taking home three thousand a week. So he was living on three thousand a week. Now, of course, will you explain the deferred income and how that worked for an sure, artist? Sure. If you defer income, you're not taxed on it. So if you take three thousand a week, you're taxed on three thousand a week, which is much lower than ninety percent. But if you take a hundred thousand a week, you're taxed at ninety, and you'd be making ten. So, well, when do you get the deferred income? It it in Johnny's case, the deferred income came twenty years later. So, if it was earned in 1967, it was actually going to be given to him in 1987. So, you're saying that Johnny Carson, in his fifth year of the Tonight Show in 1967 that he was making $150,000 a year and living in New York City? That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is he was making uh, $100,000 a week or $5 million a year. Uh, but that $5 million effectively was deferred for 20 years. So the cost of the $5 million in 1967 might have been a million and a half dollars to NBC. And you accrue it long enough in 20 years, it's worth... Five million. But look, they furnished a car and driver for him. He was able to buy an apartment at UN Plaza, which was 5,000 square feet. They lent him the money to do that because they were, in effect, holding his money. So he was able to na navigate. But the biggest problem was with the William Morris Agency because those guys negotiated the deal and they were billing him 10000 a week. For a ten percent commission on a hundred thousand, when he was taking home three, so when I got involved, he had a bill to William Morris that he couldn't possibly pay. He was getting billed ten thousand a week or a half a million a year, and he's taking home one hundred and fifty-five thousand or something like that. So, ultimately, ultimately, it came down to William Morris either backing off, you know, just tearing up that. They were getting paid three hundred a week based on his three three thousand. But in nineteen eighty seven, they get paid millions of dollars. Yeah, but but at the time, one of my partners, I was still with the old law firm, put it to William Morris that either you just tear up that IOU, or no more William Morris clients on the Tonight Show. So they tore up the IOU, 
and and that was the end of that. So he no longer. So owned. you got them to forego what ended up being millions and millions and millions of dollars. Well, it, it, no, no, it would have been ten percent of of five million, right? Times three, so it would have been a million and a half dollars. And so your partner blackballed William Morris and told them they wouldn't get any money, any any people on the show. Right. It goes full circle, doesn't it, with Helen Kushnick and The Tonight Show with Jay Leno? Look, it's part of the business, you know. It's tough being The Tonight Show, whether it's Jimmy Fallon or Jay Leno or Johnny Garson or David Letterman. It's tough getting good guests because you're competing. Now that Fallon's back in New York, he's competing with Letterman, right? And... You know, odds are everybody wants to go on Jimmy Fallon now. You know, no one cares about David Letterman in that sense. There's nothing new. There's nothing exciting. There's nothing creative going on. It's all the old stuff. At least with Fallon, you're getting brilliant stuff at times. A lot of fun. Absolutely. All right. So you negotiated those. Tell uh, our audience what you found out about Johnny's manager. Well, I found out that Johnny's clothing company called Johnny Carson Apparel was owned by Hart Shafter and Marks and Sonny Werblin, and none of it was owned by Johnny Carson. Sonny Werblin was his manager at the time. Yes, and and he had been president of the New York Jets. He had been uh, uh, president of television for MCA at the time and became uh, the czar of the New Jersey Sports Authority and then led to the creation of uh, the Meadowlands. So, so here he was you a big time important he, he was a big time guy. he was big time manager but what's odd is that he endorsed you to Johnny Carson. And here you came in and you went through his stuff and you took him down. Well, I, you know, I thought about that and I thought, well, he must have felt I was just this young kid and he's going to handle the divorce. And that'll be that. Russell Wilson was a young kid on in the Super Bowl too. So uh, that that led to Sonny giving up his interest. Johnny got the fifty percent. Sonny went his way. Johnny went his way, and uh, they still remain neighbors. You know, I don't. I, now, did now when you put showed Johnny all this stuff, and did you try to keep the relationship together, or did you tell him to get rid of the manager? Well, look, in, in, in a lawyer's role as advisor, you know, counsel, you know, that's one of the roles, counsel. What would I counsel? Of, of course I would counsel to get rid of this guy. He was, he was stealing from his own client. I mean, he was getting paid from The Tonight Show every week as an executive producer and doing nothing. So, what was his fee as executive producer, knowing that Johnny was taking home 3000 He was getting 6000 <laughs> That's not that unusual. It happens. All right. So you so you get them all straightened out financially, and which is great. So his, his business life is all set. It's getting together. All he's got to do is paying you. And you're not a 5% attorney at the time, are you? You're an hourly attorney. No, I'm, I'm strictly hourly in the sense that when I moved to California, I wasn't about to move without him guaranteeing me so much income a month. Because he he he's the reason I'm moving, and and we agreed to terms that I moved. All right, so he says I want you out here. Now you got to go to your client and negotiate a deal with him to pay you a certain amount of money. 
how did you arrive at the amount of money that you asked him for? And was that the exact amount of money that he said, okay? Or did he try to say, hey, come on, Henry, let's not go crazy. How about if I give you this? Well, I was tormented over exactly what you've asked. I had to. That's why I'm here to bring back the torment. <laughs> I had to prepare a document and I did it in longhand. You uh, again, you no, prepared no, the document I, by hand? I prepared a document by hand, and it, it, it said exactly what I felt I needed in order to move to California. What was and, that amount of money? Uh, I, I'll try to recall. I don't recall at the moment. It it's wasn't not like you had an affair much, here, it Henry. Wasn't it wasn't very much. I think it might have been a guarantee of 6000 a month, okay? Something like that. But the reality is he looked at the piece of paper or page and a half and he handed it back to me. He says, fine. That was it. Now, you being an attorney and you're a negotiator as well, this is one of the things that always bothered me is why probably when I negotiate, I sometimes uh, it's 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 a long and uh, process that's real. I'm always fighting for to make sure that nothing's left on the table. So you being an attorney, you give him a number and he just looked at it and said, fine. Did you say to yourself afterwards, God, if I had just, if I had written down 10,000 a month, he might've said fine. No, I, I really didn't. I, I was, I was comfortable enough to, to use that as the basis for coming out here. And indeed I rented a house, uh, on Linden drive in Beverly Hills on the 700 block Beverly Hills, a beautiful Spanish house with a guest house for 2000 a month, okay? And my wife thought I was nuts to pay that much for a house, you know, to rent a house. Now today, that house on Linda Drive, instead of 2000 would be 25000 a month. That's how times have changed. But I was paying 2000 a month, and I was guaranteed 6000 a month, so I... I felt I was covered, and, and pretty soon the business started to, to grow, and uh, Copelson moved out. Jimmy Walsh didn't. He, he stayed in New York, and the firm began to prosper, and uh, things, things took on a uh, sort of a life of their own in California after New York. Now, the money that you got from Carson, was that carved out of your firm? That that was strictly for me. It had nothing to do with the law firm. Did your law? Well, of course it did. He was a client. No, no, no. When when I came out, I came out on my own. I, I had partners in New York, and whatever business I had in New York remained in New York, uh, other than Carson. So they were handling all of that business, and I wasn't participating in that. Got it. So your deal with those partners was you didn't get any of their clients' money. Or, or clients that I left for them in New York. So partnerships worked differently back then. So people could work independently and make one partner could make more money than the other. But I, when I came out here, I, I was coming out on my own. I wasn't a partner. At some point, a new firm was formed, and I became a partner in that firm. And indeed, certain income of mine was carved out of that partnership that the law firm participated not uh, in any way. In. Got it. And so um, so you get his business life set, and he's feeling finally feeling safe in business. But then you're thrust into a situation where you find yourself involved in other areas of his life that you can't control, which are the relationships. 
And so here he, uh, he divorced Joanne. Uh, I'm sure you helped him figure out the settlement for that. Well, it, it came down it came down to going to court and having the judge, New York Supreme Court in Brox County, uh, tell Mrs. Carson at the time, you had to sign this document, which she was refusing to sign, or we're going to trial tomorrow, and I assure you, you're going to get less uh, going to trial than you're going to get by this document. So she signed it. Then what was then. the amount Johnny offered her? She agreed to 6000 a month. For how long? As long as uh, she lived and he lived. When you were doing your deal with uh, Carson, were you saying, hey, well, she got 6000 a month. That seems like a good round number. Let me ask for 6000 a month. No, no, no. It, I did my deal before that, <laughs> <laughs> before that was actually concluded. Got it. So 6000 a month until somebody passes away. Right. And she got paid right up until 2005. Interesting. And so now he's clear. He's a single guy. He's got his focus. He's fooling around and being a playboy. But now almost it almost seems right away he meets another woman, not Joanne, Joanna, Joanna Holland. And if I'm not mistaken from the book, what I remember reading was the fact that you weren't a big fan of uh, him getting married again. And he had a prenuptial arrangement that I believe that you were involved in helping him get together. And then at the very last minute, I, I believe that he didn't want to ruin the relationship by confronting her with the prenuptial arrangement agreement. And I think there was something involved in that that you were very involved with. Can you explain that? All of what you said is accurate. He, at the end, refused to sign a prenuptial agreement that I... <laughs> Desperately tried to get him to sign, and after all, I was two years his lawyer, so I didn't have a great deal of balls, if you will, at the time to stand up to him, and he refused to sign it. Now, what, what did the prenup? Uh, do you remember anything that it sure uh, prenups for guys like Carson at the time? And think of any big star at the time, Sinatra, or or anybody of that ilk would have done the same thing, and it meant that the income that he's making is his. The new wife has nothing to do with that. And if he continues to make more and more money at that same job, she recognizes that she has nothing to do with that increase in compensation. Okay. In return, in return, he agrees to provide for her or the the spouse, as because it could be a wife and, you know, could be doing the same thing. If she's the actress making a lot of money. So th th these these were pretty standard in those so days. So the standard prenup basically back then and today is the fact that whether it be a woman or a man who's the breadwinner, all the income that they make in their present job that existed beforehand they met and exists after they met, no matter how big it gets, is their money. And it's separate, it's separate money, and there's an arrangement for how well the person will take care of you during the marriage. In other words, you might say that they'll pay for your uh, the mortgage, pay for all the groceries, pay for your car, give you a certain amount of money per month to live on. And then, God forbid, if we divorce 10 years from now, um, you're not going to get anything. No, uh, it wouldn't. It wouldn't work like that. In Carson's case, it would have worked, 
like she would get, for example, a million dollars for every year of the marriage. Okay, so the marriage lasted 10 years. She'd, she'd walk away with 10 million plus whatever it was that he had given her as gifts, not as community property, but as a gift, a husband to a wife, a diamond bracelet, a diamond necklace, whatever, a painting, a mink coat. Those are gifts. That, that becomes her property. So in Johnny's case, it was never nothing. It was always a certain amount per year married, which was an inducement obviously, to stay married. Got it. Okay. And so he went right back into this relationship, wouldn't sign the prenup. And then tell me about how your relationship is holding up at the time. What's fascinating to me is you're working with a guy and you're seeing all these things. You're clearing up the areas of his life that are a little bit difficult and unstructured and messed up. You're seeing that you can't clean up the relationship thing. So even as he's getting married to Joanna and he's falling in love with Joanna, you're still early on seeing him have affairs, which where he went right back into a marriage. And now you're in a marriage and you're around a guy who goes to Vegas, goes to all these places. And the whole thing about Johnny and his feelings about going to Vegas, there was a there was a philosophy with him where he wanted you there with him at all times. When, uh, firstly, I'm going to ask you this. When do you feel like you gained his 100% trust when he felt comfortable taking you on these trips to Vegas or to uh, France or to all these trips? Because um, uh, what was the moment in your mind where you felt, my God, this guy, I'm in a 100 there's not one shadow of a doubt in his mind that I am not a guy who he can trust. I don't think I ever had that feeling, to tell you the truth. Uh, there was a, a New York uh, article, a New, York, uh, a New Yorker magazine article back in 1978, written by Kenneth Tynan, who was a brilliant British writer and, and theater critic. Uh, o Calcutta was a play he wrote. In in that New Yorker article, Johnny told him that I was his best friend. So I read that, right? I read that. What year was that? I think came out in 78. So this is eight years into our relationship where he says I'm his best friend. Now, this often happens to a, a lot of artists who are out there, a lot of people in the business. They... You know, you're you're hanging out with somebody and you, you know, you have a good relationship and then somebody says, you're my best friend and in your mind you walk away and you're like, Jesus, well, I, I, uh, I don't think of them as my best friend. I could echo that. See, I never thought that he was my best friend because any superstar, and I'm sure you know more than I do, but any superstar has a hair trigger about certain things. And you take a movie star, you have a few bad movies in a row, and all of a sudden it's not your fault. Look, I, I've represented <clears throat> Neil Simon, for example. Neil Simon's perhaps our most brilliant playwright. But I don't think Neil was ever wrong about anything in his entire life. <laughs> so if a play didn't make it, he asked the producer, why'd you let me do it? Or he'd fly me to Boston and say, what'd you think? And I'd have to say terrific work when it was just a piece of crap you know the play never made it to broad but it was never 
the artist's fault. You know, now I'm a writer, presumably, and I'm going to blame something if the next book doesn't work on somebody, I can assure you. But they, look, you become a superstar, you have, you have moments where if you go into a restaurant and the table's not ready, you're going to walk out. That's just the way it is. And so normal people don't act like that. Superstars, that's, that's narcissistic. You know, the system breeds narcissism. You know, everybody has narcissism characteristics. You have to, right? You must in order to survive, to dress well, want to look good. But when you get out of your car and they're waiting for you at the restaurant to show you your table, and all of a sudden they say, stand at the bar for a few minutes, you know, all hell's going to break loose. It would with Carson, I assure you. So how did your relationship with your wife stand the test of time? So the big moment, I think, for you with Johnny came when his contract with NBC was was up and he was becoming a free agent. And this was a situation where where finally you saw the light at the end of the tunnel where he could get a really great payday. Uh, And... Also, he was being in a situation where he was being, you know, offered many things from many people, including ABC, who offered him twice as much money as anybody would offer him to come to their network. Uh, Talk about uh, what you saw with Johnny as far as what could happen with that negotiation and how you got him to be the highest paid person in television history. On St. Patrick's Day, I think 1979, I was in New York to meet with Mike Weinblatt of NBC to tell him Johnny was going to retire at the end of October on the anniversary show. That was going to be his last show. So, fellas, you got six months to find a new host and see ya and good luck. That was my mission, to tell him he was quitting. Now, that, that was serious. The, the contract had two years to run, so it was not a question of uh, he was a free agent. He was not a free agent, but we took the position that he had been their employee for seven years and under California statutes... That's all you could hold anybody to is seven years. Then you got to be a free agent. And that that came from, from old case law, Olivia de Havilland and the studios, where the studios wanted to lock you up for as long a term as they could. So there was case law, and NBC said, no, wait a second. We renew, we give him new contracts every couple of years. I mean, come on. This is, this is nonsense. Yes, he's been with us more than seven years, but he has had eight contracts, and he's making like tw- whatever he was making at the time. Uh, my position was, yeah, he may have gotten all these increases, but he was never a free agent. He never had the opportunity to measure his worth on the open market. And so we, we wound up in a lawsuit with NBC, and the result of the lawsuit was that he was a free agent. And by that time, interestingly enough, and I'm sure you've seen this before, he had changed his mind. He says, you know, what would I do you know, if I retired? He would have nothing to do. So he changed his mind, but fortunately we beat NBC, and the result is we obtained ownership of The Tonight Show, and he continued to work until 1992, at which time he was then making, I said, $40 million a year. That's That's sort of the progression. And it was during that lawsuit that ABC was sniffing around 
to see if they could interest Johnny in coming to work for them. And we had all sorts of interesting negotiations. It took place here. It took place on a yacht, on a yacht yeah, uh, south of France. And you also and, met at Joan Rivers and her husband's uh, house as well. Right, right here in uh, in Bel Air, which and, is very odd because later on Joan Rivers um, did something that really, really uh, damaged his psyche and created more trust issues. But so here he is uh, negotiating things where he trusts somebody and then later on. But we're going to talk about that, too. So let's just talk about that deal for a second. So what are you and John when you and Johnny meet together? You obviously have a plan. You don't go into a negotiation without a plan. And back then he owned nothing and he was getting a salary and I, I don't exactly remember the salary he was making in 1979 or 1980, but you had to sit down. It's like when Ray Romano and his lawyer, um, uh, Jonathan Moonves, went into negotiation against his brother, Les Moonves, at CBS. He had in his mind a number that he wanted for that last year. Uh, they settled on $40 million for the last year. But you don't roll out with $40 million. You roll out with a number above that, and you see what you can do and however it was. But your plan, which was fascinating, and I have to give you credit for it because I'm certain that uh, Johnny didn't sit down with you with an outline of exactly how he wanted things to go. You were in a situation where back then the networks didn't really understand the value of content. You know, the, the term that Steve Jobs coined, content is king, the networks didn't understand the value of the content after it aired. They, they had no knowledge. So you, you, you had the vision of knowing that, hey, these guys normally tape over a lot of these things. We want the whole library, and we want to own the library. And the lawyer on the other side probably said to himself, you know, what? Who cares? So for you, how did you have the vision of knowing that that content would be valuable? Because I want to share something with our audience here. When you did that deal and you got Carson the ability to own all those past episodes, you almost immediately made a deal that netted him $25 million for all the content that he had shot thus far. And that didn't even include the content that he was going to shoot in the future. How could NBC not know if they'd have just held on to that, the $25 million a year you got him as a salary, they could have paid from just selling off the tapes and they would have gotten Johnny Carson for nothing. How could NBC have no vision and Henry Bushkin have all the vision? I think you'd have to ask someone from NBC, wouldn't you? <laughs> Uh, look, we we picked up on some language in the in the contract, and it had to do with the creation of of material. You know how it got created. Now, writers take credit for creating material, but writers don't get ownership of material. You know, on talk shows, they don't. Uh, well, in, in my world, okay, I'm not I'm not identifying any other type of show other than the Tonight Show. And so uh, many bits were written by very famous writers. So Woody Allen, for example, was a Tonight Show writer. And, and many of these characters were, were emanating from these brilliant writers. But Johnny got to own the characters. And so 
I talked to various people and they thought it would make a good show. And we did sell it. We sold it for $26 million to Columbia and it was called Carson's Comedy Classics. So it's it isn't enough that you make a deal for Johnny Carson to make $25 million a year, but then you do the content deal that gets him $26 million. So Johnny is making $51 million from that deal just in the first year alone. Well, the, the, the intent was to own The Tonight Show. By, by this time in the negotiations, they had given up, if you know what I mean. They had thrown up their hands because he wanted to work. They had to keep him. We had agreed on on salary. We had agreed on what what the numbers were. We agreed on vacation. There are a lot of things that go into an agreement such as his. But the, the uh, demand for that content, they sort of had given up by then. So I can't say it was a great negotiation. We got it, and we made good use of it. And you got ownership of The Tonight Show. Now, when you look at it, I always talk about this. There's three kinds of deals. There's a deal where if I'm negotiating with you, I finish the deal and I throw my hands up in the air and I'm like, yeah, we got him. There's a deal where you throw your hands up in the air and say, yeah, we got him. There's a deal where you say, eh, it was fair. There's no way that after that deal got negotiated, you said in your mind after you got ownership of The Tonight Show, ownership of the content that you sold for 26 million 25 million a year there's no way that you could look in the mirror and say yeah that was fair well the result of that all of what you've just said was johnny then made me a partner in in the business that was created out of that uh, Carson Productions, Carson, which was well, a, there were others, which Carson was which was another was thing in the contract that they negotiated, where they would form a production company, which NBC would fund the office space, the employees, everything, and they would the development, and Johnny would get five projects that he could do at NBC or NBC Productions, that basically would automatically get a go. I mean, it, it, for, for, a, for a show, for him to develop like a scripted show, to not get picked up and go on the air would mean that it would literally have to be like the worst thing that was ever made in the world. Uh, and there were a few of those. but uh, Many. Many. Many of those. But so you're, you, you make this deal, and, you know, when you're starting to realize how much money he's going to make, when a guy is about to make $50 million and you're making $6,000 a month, you know you have to sit down no, and have another no, no, conversation. 6000 a month was in 1972. Okay, let's not presume that eight years go by and I didn't get a raise from 6000 But let's say you got raises. Do you, you know, I don't think, maybe, I don't know, but most bosses aren't the type of guys that just walk in the office and say, hey, I'm going to give you this. No, you, but you have, to, you have to understand that Johnny was a performer and an entertainer and showbiz was his life. He knew how things worked, you know. 10% to him was standard meaning you deserve 10% so i'll pay you 10% but not for a lawyer it's not standard no no, no no but 
forget the lawyer, okay? Lawyer. <laughs> How is can part, I forget the lawyer? I'm looking at the lawyer. But but lawyer, lawyer often transcends. There are lawyers that run companies, and they're not running them as lawyers. They're running them as executives of companies. By this time, I was running the various companies that we were creating. John McMahon was the West Coast head of production for NBC, who we hired. Okay, He was the one who had produced the five series for Carson Productions, none of which was a hit. They all failed. He, he then was fired, and Ed Weinberger replaced him. Then we had started to have some hits. Legendary Ed Weinberger. Right, the legendary Ed Weinberger. So, look, the business itself was not successful for some time. It became successful. It was never a financial loss in that sense. It was always financially successful. But when your name is Carson and it's called Carson Productions, you don't like seeing failures. I mean, come on. You just don't like it. So Barry Katz Productions doesn't want to see Barry Katz Productions have failures. You want to see hits. So he was getting annoyed you know, from a from a uh, CEO's standpoint, he was getting annoyed. How creatively involved was he? Did he read the scripts? Not Did he bit. make any Not notes? Not a bit. Not could a care bit. less. Could care less. We set up offices on Riverside Drive. We bought a building on Riverside Drive five minutes from NBC so that he could stop by on the way to work. You know, boost morale, say hello to people. And how many times did he stop by? Uh, maybe two, you know, in two years. Um, it's just, it's it's uh, counterintuitive that you would think that would happen, but that's how disinterested he was in business as opposed to The Tonight Show. And he loved The Tonight Show. And in, in my world, he was certainly the best, and I think in everybody's world he was the best. But when you think about it, if he had stopped in 1985 and had a continuum through his auspices, he would have been much better off than going to 1992 and being kicked in the butt to get out. You know, it was sort of a, an ungrateful end to a brilliant career. You know, that could have been changed, but it was his, it was his life, and he didn't want to give up to the Tonight Show. He should have given it up earlier in my world, and I was urging him to do that, and he was getting more annoyed at me for doing that because if he continued through 1992, which he did, we never had the ability to hold anybody to replace him. There's, when are we going to go in? You know, like when is he going to retire? So we couldn't hold anybody because he wouldn't ever give an end date. That was a big problem for us. Now, if he owned The Tonight Show, how is it possible that the Tonight Show name lives on and you never see a Johnny Carson title card because, after. Because we owned it during his time period. Got it. During his time. They, the Tonight Show was always theirs. It was never his. It started before him, and obviously it, it, it continues very well today with Jimmy Fallon. So they owned The Tonight Show, but he did during his time. Now, I think... You'll also note that when you see rebroadcasts of it, they don't say The Tonight Show. They say The Johnny Carson Show, or they say something. And all the videos, I think, eliminate the name Tonight Show because that truly is owned by NBC. But what I was saying is that if we had a logical successor, we would have continued to own it. 
Got it. Now, uh, I know from uh, being a manager, you know, you're dealing with a lot of artists that are broken. They're geniuses. They're brilliant, but they're broken. They're, they, they're, and a lot of them suffer from alcohol abuse, drug addiction, sex addiction. Um, and consequently, the things that happen in their life make them angrier and angrier and angrier. And the littlest things can set them off. And, and in any situation where they don't feel like they have control... They want to avoid. And that's why so many celebrities just stay at home. They stay in their homes. They live their life. And because they know the minute they go out of the house to do anything, the variables are not in their favor. And one of the things where I always, as a manager, learned the hard way, and it's one of the most difficult things, every artist that's worth anything is always asked to do benefits always asked to do benefits and there's always somebody who comes up to you and says listen be a personal favor to me if you did this for me it would mean a lot to me my my sister passed away from this disease or my mom has this disease it'll be a personal favor and once you say yes you know you're doing what's called in the Jewish religion a mitzvah but you're also putting yourself at risk and putting the relationships that you have of trust and with the people around you at risk because nothing ever goes the way it's supposed to go. And there was one instance in the book that was so fantastic, a story that basically twisted your relationship with Johnny into a balloon animal, no matter how much he trusted you, no much how much he believed in you. And even with your marriage, where you were in a situation where you were working so hard to keep it together and you thought, hey, you know, I'll bring my wife out to this thing. It'll be a wonderful thing. It'll be all expenses paid. This will show her that I'm a good man and I'm going to take care of her. And you convinced Johnny to do this thing that I want you to talk about and tell our audience how it all went down. The... <laughs> how you convinced Johnny to do it and what the consequences were during the production that led to the demise and the beginning, in my opinion, of the demise of your relationship. Well, you have to remember this incident was months after the success we enjoyed against NBC. The new contract was done. The production company was formed. Uh, so that was like November 1980, and this is January 1981. So it's a year maybe or two after I'm declared his best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and and months after this, uh, as you say, this type of victory that you sort of stand up and cheer. Yeah, we did it. You know, what a great thing. So uh, it wasn't me who convinced Johnny. It was, it was Frank Sinatra who asked Carson to host the inaugural gala for President Reagan. Now, President Reagan was a friend of Carson's and he was a friend of Sinatra's. And they oftentimes went to the same party. So this is the fact that Reagan is now a president was shocking to most, you know, of the inner circle. 
But nonetheless, he was now, you know, the president-elect of the United States, and he asked Sinatra to organize the affair, and Sinatra asked Carson to host it because Reagan really wanted Carson. And I was really the intermediary. I was the one making the arrangements after Johnny said, geez, you know, Frank really put me on the spot. What could I do? I, you know, I couldn't turn it down. I said, well, you know, you've agreed. We have to go through with it. So... So for me, my marriage was then on the rocks, and that that weekend presented itself as a reconciliation sort of weekend. And the inauguration obviously was in Washington D.C., and they were providing you to the the best hotel in D.C. and and everything was we had wonderful. Two limousines, military escorts. We got to all the parades, all the events, and uh, we went to very few, but. The point was it was it was sort of this gala weekend, and I thought my wife and I could figure out a way to continue on. And, and, and every and conceivable thing that could go wrong went wrong. And coincidentally, Johnny Carson's marriage was having some problems, and but now he'd signed the New Deal, and he could be in a situation where— he could take care of his wife a little extra money. And this trip also was limousines, beautiful presidential suite probably, everything all taken care of. But also, though, what Johnny didn't plan for was that his wife, the littlest, tiniest things would set her off. And when those things set her off, they would set him off. And when those things set him off, there was only one dog to kick. And that was Henry Bushkin. Well, Barry, have you ever been in a circumstance like that? Come on. Everybody who's a manager or a lawyer. (laughs) No, never. 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 Right. I was the dog to kick. And and the moment uh, occurred after a series of screw-ups. And finally, the event was over. And we were going to no parties. Nothing. We were having a private dinner. uh, But talk about the series of screw-ups. Well, the series of screw-ups began with the with the roster of people performing at the inaugural gala. Carson felt at least he deserved and the public deserved to see first-rate talent at inaugural gala, and he felt Debbie Boone was not such. You know, he thought Rich Little didn't quite fit the bill. <laughs> And most normal people would agree with that. That's not like what America... I mean, they're great artists. I don't mean to demean them as artists, but... No, but what's fascinating is back then, you got a guy like Johnny, who you think is so gracious with talent, and behind the scenes, you know, people that he's had on The Tonight Show several times, like Rich Little and Debbie Boone, in the background, he's saying, oh, these fucking hacks. I can't believe Sinatra. He might be a great artist, but he's a fucking shitty producer. <laughs> he said those exact words words actually (laughs) you must have been there (laughs) but that's what artists do you're sitting you know i've been there in those rooms you're in those rooms and you're seeing an artist just pass somebody in the hallway and saying like hey man how you doing you're doing such great work unbelievable keep it up buddy and they walk out the door and they're like oh what a fucking hack (laughs) and that's what you work with and that's what you can't believe that johnny carson is like that but then so you know he's a upset about that so, but then i just wanted to want you to share a little bit about this thing so what happens when you're putting a benefit together and i hope you don't mind but when you're putting something together and you agree to do something that's a benefit 
this is where it all goes astray because you say stuff like, listen, would you mind if you send me the contract or the benefit? Barry, don't be a jerk. It's a benefit, okay? There's no contract. There's no money. We're going to fly you in and put you up and do whatever. Everybody's doing it for free. Okay, but my client really went, Barry, don't be a dick, okay? Stop it. And so you do that, whatever, and your client goes in to do the benefit. They get to the hotel, and the hotel room is not necessarily the way they want it to be. And they call you up, and they say, Barry, what the fuck? This suite, it's a junior suite. What's going on? I mean, I... You know who I am? I get a suite. When I was in Vegas, I got a 5,000 square foot suite. What do I do in this little... I put the key in the door. I break the window. This place is sucks, Barry. This is your fault, man. Fix it. And so then you go to the producers and you're like, listen, um, could you guys do me a favor? And I would like to upgrade to another thing or whoever it is. And then they say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, there's no rooms available. And you got to go back to the person. So then you get to the event or whatever and wherever you are. And this is what else happens. And this is what happened to uh, uh, Johnny. You get there and you find out. There's cameras everywhere. There's film cameras. There's, there, there, there's, well, a, there's well. a big crane. There's everything. You find out they're filming the event and ABC is filming at the network that right. you passed to, on. To add insult. And they're making $6 million from the production of the, the sh shooting. And your client isn't making anything. And your client comes to you and says, what the fuck are you doing, Barry? This is going on ABC. They're making six million. Why are you protecting me? Do you care about me as an artist? I'm like, well, yeah, I, I do care about you, but it was a benefit, and it was, you know, and for Carson, it was like, if you know, Frank Sinatra was the only guy, from what I read in your book as well, the only guy that Carson feared. He felt uneasy around Frank Sinatra. The only person that I know of, besides I, I a divorce say, attorney. I wouldn't say feared. He didn't fear him. He respected him. You know, he, he, they, they liked one another. They knew each other for a long time. And Carson had a great Sinatra bit that he would always say if you asked him what he thought about Sinatra. He would say, it'd be my luck to be on a plane with Sinatra that crashes. And the headlines would read, Sinatra and others die. <laughs> that was Johnny's biggest fear in life. Johnny was well aware of that, and his his act, his Las Vegas act, which he got paid two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year at the. No, I'm sorry, a weekend, a weekend at a Caesar's weekend. Palace. But but his act would be such that you would swear he was saying "fuck you," but he wasn't. You know, but you would swear that he would have said that to somebody, and it's just the way he said it and the tone of voice and the look, and he got away with it. That's why when you use an, an occasional piece of language, you can get away with it. Certainly, I felt that way in my book, and, and I know he felt that way in life. You know, you just don't use language like that unless you get a really big laugh out of it. And so you're getting, so all these things are happening at this event, and one by one, he's calling you, he's telling you, Henry, you don't have my back, you don't have my back. Well, the, and then the, the fun, but the, the final. Ma Marty Pacetto was the director. Now, Marty Pacetto was a director we hated. But you only found out that he was the director that because night. he found out that night. So here's a guy that he hated because <laughs> Marty Pacetta had done another special where he hosted the Oscars. Johnny hosted the Oscars, and Marty Pacetta 
was the guy who was the director. Now, back then, the Academy Awards were not live, okay? I believe they were shot, and then they were edited for television later that night. It might have been a quick, it might have been an hour, and they might have shortened the monologue by a minute or two. Yeah, so he hated Marty because Marty edited his monologue of the Academy Awards. So now he's yelling at uh, Henry again, this guy, you fucking director, you got to make sure what... So it was Henry's job and Johnny's to make sure that this guy was not going to edit anything out of this television special. Which I had no way of doing. I didn't even know where he was, you know. He could have been at a truck somewhere, you know. I had no ability to say anything about editing except they knew one of the conditions was you could not edit his monologue. That was the only condition. And so, and so he finally gets that concession. And so then they afterwards, it's a successful event. Carson doesn't really think it's successful because he's gone through all this horrible stuff, whatever. Then Carson's wife, Joanna. Whoa, 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 whoa. But, but you have to understand that in this restaurant, uh, Walter Annenberg, who was then U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, was there. There were some senators at this private party and televisions all around to watch the broadcast to see his mom. This is the tape delay broadcast. And so it's a, and it's a party that's thrown for Johnny. It's in his honor at this restaurant. And here Henry is sitting at the same table. <laughs> famous people, you know, senators, ambassadors, whatever. And we're watching and Johnny, of course, realizes that they fucking edited the monologue. This prick has done this to me again. It, <laughs> and he demands that the television be shut off. <laughs> so everybody's there to watch so the thing. Oh, they're celebrating now in mourning, you know, like, like it's a horrible moment. But there's there, but there's then there's an even worse moment for Henry. Henry finds out that Johnny's wife, Joanna, was sitting in the seventh row of the theater of the Academy Awards, but Ed McMahon's wife was sitting in better seats. <laughs> so then Joanna tears Johnny a new asshole, and who does Johnny kick? Well, no, no, no. It, it didn't exactly happen like this. We're all in a state of shock, you understand, because of this television show that has gone awry. You know, Marty Pacetta has just <laughs> fucked him again, and how dare he, you know, and we're all, we don't know what to say. You know, this is like we're trying, and there's a restaurant full of people and nobody knows what to say. And all of a sudden, moments into this silence, his wife becomes hysterical. She starts crying at the table. <laughs> I was saying, what is she crying about? Like, what's happened to her? You know, so Carson, who has little tolerance for anybody other than himself at moments like this. I'm sure you've never met people like that. Turns to her and grabs her like, what the fuck is going on? And she then tells this tale of Victoria McMahon actually sitting with Frank's wife in the fourth row. And she was in the seventh. And how embarrassing for her. And how dare... Pushkin, allow this to happen. <laughs> so that must have been a chilly conversation with you. What did Carson say to you? Right. Well, 
he then, <laughs> he then called me. Meanwhile, well. you're there with your wife. You're trying to get together, have a great weekend, and you're getting call after call of people. <laughs> right, and and it was a complete debacle. And I left the next morning. And the the interesting thing, he says, well, I'm not going home today because the president invited me over to the White House, and we're going to see the president at the White House. So and just, I, uh, just stop. Saying, Hopefully this is going to solve things. And I'm like, maybe you'll feel better. You this know? is like, the big thing. So he, this is one thing that Henry was involved in arranging this visit with the president the day after. So he goes, he's thinking, maybe if I leave town, Carson won't be mad at me, and then he'll meet the president. Everything will be wonderful. I, I didn't arrange it. Sinatra arranged to meet the president. Not me. So he was going at Sinatra's invitation to meet the president, and he went. And what happened, Henry? He was given a VIP tour of the White House, which he refused to go on and stormed out of the White House. <laughs> And so did the call go to Frank Sinatra yelling at him or did the call go to you? I was on an airplane, you understand, you know, like I was on an airplane the next day when he was going to the White House. So by that time I arrived back at my apartment, there were five, you know, we had answering machines, you know, how you turned on mm -hmm. answering. There were five screaming messages. <laughs> <laughs> how I screwed up his stay in Washington. Why didn't he, <laughs> why didn't he call Sinatra? You ask Frank. <laughs> so, so and so nice. your marriage falls apart was, because of this weekend. I, I felt I was totally fired, you know. I said, this can't get any worse. I don't know that feeling. <laughs> right. And I couldn't believe that this was happening months after we had just created the um is now his partner who's he's now gonna get rid of his partner of five minutes, you know. <clears throat> but uh Things were made right several days later, but it wasn't until several days later that the trauma sort of left. The trauma died down because um, the call came from the president and his wife to Joanna and uh, Johnny apologizing for all the things that happened there. So that kind of gave you a reprieve. The president called Johnny to apologize for the seating. Could you imagine the president of the United States calling anyone in the world to apologize for where their seats were at some silly event, because that's what the inaugural is. It's a silly event, you know, it's just parties. And this, I thought, was the end of my relationship with Carson, seriously. And screwed uh, up seat, <laughs> which, which was about as far from where you are to where I am, you know. So it's silliness. So but you've never seen that before. No, surely. never, never seen that before. <laughs> of course, I have. It's uh, incredible. Um, I want to talk about uh, something here because we could spend a lot of time on the marriages and the divorces of Joanna and and how you know the prenup cost them thirty five million dollars and. We could talk a lot about the alcoholism or the infidelity, and but you'll have to read the book for that, I think, because uh, uh, there's not enough time to talk about everything. But one thing I want to talk about that sort of relates to um, what we do here on this podcast besides, you know, because I, I think this has been very inspirational, not just your journey, but Johnny's journey and the things that you deal with as an artist, as well as uh, somebody who's representing an artist. But... You came into Johnny's life 
because he trusted you. You found people in his life that were doing things behind the scenes that were not on the up and up. You discovered people that were not communicating to him the things that they were doing. Even if they had communicated them, some of them he might have been okay with, but people who didn't communicate tell him exactly how, full disclosure. And consequently, agents, managers were fired. You were there who saw saw that. You saw in the 80s with one of the people that Johnny trusted more than anybody, anything else in the world was Joan Rivers. He loved Joan Rivers. He had meetings with ABC at Joan Rivers' house when he was doing the negotiations in 1980. He gave her guest shot opportunities. And when she was offered uh, to do her own talk show at Fox and with her husband being an executive producer, she didn't communicate with uh, with um, Johnny. Um, they said that they talked to you and they left messages for you, but uh, the documentation shows that uh, they didn't and they didn't communicate or else you would have communicated that to Johnny. Um, their relationship deteriorated and Joan was another person that uh, disappointed Johnny and um, violated his trust. And what I want to talk to you about, which is a really sensitive issue, is that for 18 years, you saw all the people in his life that made Johnny Carson not trust them and made him lose faith in humanity from wives who took him over the hurdles for millions of dollars uh, to his mother who was ungrateful and he he didn't even go to her funeral and um when she died he exclaimed the wicked witch is dead and he blamed her for fucking up all his relationships with women so all these people frank sinatra who let him down at the inauguration the director who fucked him over all people who did things behind his back and didn't communicate and then in the 17th year or so of your relationship, you made some decisions regarding Johnny Carson's business that were similar in tone to a lot of the decisions that these people made that, that damaged and tore apart their relationships and ended relationships. Why did you take the risk of doing these things and not communicating with him knowing everything that you saw in the past and what was the impetus for for doing those things and tell our audience the things that i'm talking about well i i believe what you're talking about is after his company was put up for sale uh, i went to his investment bankers and advised, I was no longer representing him. I was fired. Uh, pardon, pardon me. This is you're right. This is this is before I went to the investment bankers, attempting to sell his business that I created for ninety million dollars. The one that you had ten percent of. Right. The one that I had ten percent of. And. <clears throat> but you didn't tell him you did that. I. I I was approached with Ed Weinberger to by another company to see if we would be interested in running their company. 
I know that, but you didn't call Johnny and tell him that. No, I told his bankers that this offer was out there if they couldn't get a better offer. So I, it was never intended to be told to him. It was why, why not? Because there was no reason to tell it to them. All well, that, how much of the ninety million would have gone to Johnny? Everything but ten percent. Okay, so why wouldn't he be told? Because his investment bankers were told if they wanted to communicate it with him. Fine. But you're his best friend. I, it, this was this was when I didn't want the company sold. They he wanted it sold. We were really at odds. Okay, we weren't really communicating very well about anything at the time. He wanted to shut the company down completely. Because of all the failures of the sitcoms and he didn't want no, to be associated with failure? No, that we had now great success. And he didn't want to bother with all the meetings that would be required to run a successful and growing production company. It had nothing to do with... But he was never required to go to meetings. Ed Weinberger was the man. I mean, he was that, like the Chuck Lorre of the day. I mean, You bet. And, and yet it was a bother because Ed Weinberger had to fire Johnny's son. Now, you could imagine this circumstance where the son is coming into work as the stage manager on the set and he's drunk every day. So it, it goes on for just so long... And then you yeah, say, and John hey, and we, Johnny's we, son ended we, up committing suicide. No, well, 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 well it's uh, he tried to well, commit this, suicide, this, and his, the, the, the circumstances of his death were uh, were uh, unexplained. The, the, look, this is when he was working for Carson Productions, the son, and Weinberger couldn't stand it anymore, and he fired him, and he left it to me to tell Johnny that his son was fired. Uh, he wouldn't call Johnny. He wouldn't do it. He refused. to you refused to do it. So I did it. So that created a, just a rift between the two. Now you have to understand that Weinberger was a writer for the Tonight Show in 1964. These guys went way back, you know, and they, Ed knew every bit of Johnny's personality and every bit of it because Ed has a similar personality, you know. Yes, he does. Very narcissistic, very self-centered, only thinks about himself. And and when you have two guys like that, both very successful, it, it led to Johnny saying, screw it, I'm done with this, close it down, you know, and, and that's what happened. So it was, it was, we knew that my time was coming to an end because my life was invested in this company. This was like seven years of my life now. And he, on a whim, he wanted it shut down because of the firing of the son. And that so was, that was in your mind. That's the reason why oh, he shut was, it down was the firing was, of the son. It, that was absolutely the reason that it happened. Now it didn't happen that day, but it. He, he then had a hard on for Ed Weinberger because he fired his kid. You know, he never he couldn't admit that. The but kid he didn't just blame him. Ed Weinberger. Well. well <laughs> Look, there's a dog to kick, right? So if you're the manager, Barry, you get the call. Come on, you get the call. Tell me in your mind, true serum in your veins, why were you fired? What did you do wrong? That you, If I were to ask you, Barry, you would tell me, Barry, this is where I did something wrong, and I admit 
I could have done it a different way and I didn't and I deserve to be fired for that one thing I did. Okay. What was it? I, I, okay, I would say can't give you that simple an answer. I can say that, that Johnny <clears throat> suffered greatly by virtue of his mother. He suffered, an, I've since found this out, a, a narcissistic personality disorder. Now, when you compound that with narcissism, and then you get a supernova sort of narcissism because the guy is actually a superstar and he suffers from from a, a, a behavioral disorder. He really did. So I would say that it reached a point in my life where I couldn't deal with it anymore. I couldn't deal with him now being omnipotent. There was no discussion about anything. It was simply my way, and this is what I want, and you better do it. So I would say that I outlived my usefulness. I wanted to do it my way, and if you didn't want to do it his way, that was it. So at some point, that's if I did something wrong, that was it. And and if you if you work backwards, you would say, well, you never should have started a production company. You never should have, because what did he need it for? You know, he died worth half a million, half a billion. So what if he died worth two billion? Would his life have changed? Not a bit. So I think in 1980 or 81, I think you were right, the downhill slide began because as my interests diverged from his, where the goals differed, I think that's where the end began. Well, the end began when you signed that deal for 10% of the deal, when you became a partner with him. Because when you become a partner with an artist, what happens is you're responsible. When you're managing an artist, the great part is, is you're the cabinet. You're the person who makes it happen with their talent. When you partner up on something, if something goes wrong at that production, guess what? you're the person responsible. If you're managing somebody and they're doing a deal with another production company, or even if they're doing the deal with their own production company and you're helping, you are not responsible. They cannot point the finger at you. So when Tom Brunel at, uh, with Chelsea Handler took the job of, uh, of being a partner in Chelsea's production company, as opposed to being an employee or working on something, you know, there's more... There's more responsibilities, more things that can happen. There's more things you got to worry about. And if you're doing your job the same way you did it before you took that position, you're going to get fired. You have to navigate and change the way you figure out how to deal with the artist when you are partnered with his money. I wish I knew that then. Okay, well, now we know. I wish I knew that. I wish I knew that many times myself. Until, um, all right, we're going to ask you some questions, and then uh, we're going to ride off in the sunset here. Tell me about uh, the meeting between Johnny and Elvis Presley. That was my first visit to Las Vegas, and it, I was there to convince him to sign the prenuptial because it was around that time that he was. <clears throat> getting ready to marry Joanna. And so I was there, and he he sent me, along with my cousin Richard, who was a lawyer in California, uh, to see El the Elvis Presley show at the International. 
And, you know, it was a big deal to me to see the show. We had great seats because Carson arranged it. And the next night, I went to see the Carson show in Las Vegas, first time I had ever seen it. And uh, I then went backstage and just sitting and talking with him. And all of a sudden, Elvis Presley shows up. He was he was in the wings watching Johnny's act, waiting for one of the Sahara girls, and so he stayed for the whole show. And once uh, Johnny was backstage, he he came up. Of course, they called and Elvis came up. I was sitting there, and you know, like wow, you know, I was like in in shock that I was there. And and he came in in a in a white rhinestone. You know, jumpsuit, you know, it was like typical Elvis, you know, with the cape. <laughs> I mean, it was it was quite a scene, and and the two had lots of fun for you know five minutes, and uh, but it was a very cool experience. Tell me about a story that uh, with Johnny that is something that uh, your relationship with him anything. It could involve a celebrity. It could involve. Uh, infidelity. What positions like that were you put in with Johnny where you were you couldn't believe that you were in these situations? Oh, there were many, you know, far too many to describe, but I'll give you one that I just couldn't believe I was involved with. We belonged at the time, both of us, the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. I still belong to the Beverly Hills Tennis Club, happily so. It's on Maple Drive in Beverly Hills. And uh, Johnny was hooking up with a, a well-known performer and needed a place. And my secretary at the time, her boyfriend, had a condo on Palm Drive. Who was the well-known performer? Uh, well, let me finish the story. <laughs> I'll tell you the performer. So, <clears throat> so Johnny convinced my secretary to ask her boyfriend since he was in New York, if it would be okay if he used the flat whilst the boyfriend was in New York for occasional dalliances, all of which would be followed up by a cleaning crew and, and you know, gifts and whatever, you know, thank yous. Money? Not money, but, you know, I mean, nice gifts. I mean, nice, expensive, significant gifts. Unlike Bob Hope. I'm talking significant gifts like a piece of Steuben glass or a piece of Lalique or so, something yeah. nice, you know, that you anybody would enjoy, like like your fine bottle of uh, tequila. Or, I hope regalia vodka. Oh, vodka, I'm sorry. Bill Bellamy <laughs> regalia vodka. So, so uh, but, so uh, right around the corner from the tennis club on Palm Drive, Johnny is having these, these uh, what I would call assignations, and it was with Anne Margaret you know, right around the corner, and she's married, and he's married, and I'm really not involved. It's my secretary that's done this. But she used to do a lot of these things for him, and and that became a problem for me because he was calling her to do things that he knew I wouldn't do, like go to the Beverly Hills Hotel and get me, you know, sign, you know register Henry, and I'll show up and just bring so-and-so, you know, like get gifts and bring them to the room. Things like, things that guys with plenty of money and plenty of opportunity and plenty of uh, sort of uh, 
I don't give a shit type of attitude, <clears throat> which Sinatra had and many, Bob Hope had it certainly, and Carson had it. He wasn't that unusual. But putting, put, being put in these awkward situations happened frequently. But one of the quotes that Carson said when a lawyer found out for his wife that he was having an affair, he said the quote, fuck him, <clears throat> a stiff prick has no conscience. He would say that often, you know, <laughs> as, as his excuse, you know. What was the impetus for writing the book? What happened to make you say, I can do this? You've never written a book before. You're an attorney. Um, what was the thought process between, between uh, in your mind for writing the book? And did you ever think it would be a New York Times number one bestseller? Okay, I don't know where to start. Let me start with, <laughs> with the book. Uh, I actually began writing a novel. And, and that's because I was traveling between Saudi Arabia, this country, and China <clears throat> quite frequently. And when you do that, you realize you're in airports and on airplanes a long time. You know, sitting around, waiting for meetings, going to Saudi Arabia for two days of meetings, and it takes like four days to get there and back. <laughs> and you regret being there in the first place. You know, it's like one of those things. So I had plenty of time. I started writing a novel, and at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club, Ed Hookstratton, who had been Johnny's lawyer after me, said, why are you writing a novel? Why don't you write about your time with Carson? Everybody wants to know about him. I said, well, what about you? He said, I didn't really know him. I just did his work. You knew him. You should write the book. That's what gave me the impetus because I was already sort of in a writing mode. And for the writers in our audience, so, you, you know, you go and you have a germ of an idea. From the time you sat down at your computer for the first time until you finished the first draft of the book, how long was that? Well, I did it in longhand. I didn't do it on computer. I did it on... Uh, Goes on back eight, to your history of, yeah, uh, of contracts on longhand. That's what I did it. So I started in 2008, and it wasn't until 2010 that I thought I had enough chapters, six, to show an agent to perhaps get a big-time agent. And so I was able to. I was able to get a big-time agent by the name of Wayne Kaback in New York. What's the company where he's in? It's, it's his own. I forget the name of it. But he. How many people did you submit it to who passed? Uh, we, we only submitted it to agents, and we actually got quite a number of responses. And how many publishers did you send it to that passed? Well— I didn't. Wayne Kaback, I only sent it to agents. Wayne then took on my representation and sent it to publishers. And ultimately, he sent it to all the book big-time publishers. And at the time, they said, love the book, love the material, but Carson's not relevant. So in 2010, I was told, love the book, love the pages, Carson's not relevant. So it wasn't until 2012, like two years later, that I decided I'm going to just take another pass at this, try to do this in another sort of voice, if you will. And that's the one that ultimately uh, Houghton Mifflin bought. Did you get another agent? 
Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I had a, I had another agent, uh, but that was by happenstance, actually. But isn't that what I it's had, all about? I I had another agent, and and he did he did a terrific job, and fortunately, the results of the book are such that I get to write a second book. So that's, that's a cool thing. It's fantastic with more money. Uh, what's your proudest moment in your career? Well, I don't know that the proudest moment in my career has to do with Carson, to tell you the truth. It doesn't to, matter? No, it had to do with a, a nine-week jury trial that I tried in 1992, where the jury was out for two and a half weeks over Thanksgiving, and a uh, 12-person jury, and and finally came back with with a proper award plus punitive damages. And I think that moment for me was the proudest in terms of the work I had actually done as a lawyer. Awesome. Yeah, it was. I thought so. What's your biggest professional disappointment? Wow, I think I have many. You know, I think my biggest professional disappointment was not not taking care of any other clients other than Johnny. I... I I was able to obtain many clients, but pass them off to other lawyers because I just didn't have time to deal with them. And I think that's my a professional regret that I allowed him to take up so much of my time that I wasn't able to build up another client base. One sentence in your mind, if somebody said... You get to describe Johnny Carson in one sentence. What was it? What a, is it? A brilliant performer who, despite being complex and complicated, remains the gold standard for every late-night talk show host to, uh, to stand up to. Robert Morton, who we had on the show, was the executive producer of Letterman for 15 years. One day he was called in the office, said, we're going to make a change. I said to him, after getting the haymaker just completely knocked out, did you ever have the desire to watch Letterman again? And he said, every night. He was the gold standard. After you got the shit kicked out of you and you were out of his life, did you still watch The Tonight Show? Never. Never again. I mean, I watched Jay Leno for a couple of nights, but I didn't see Carson's last night, and I didn't regret not seeing it. I thought it was sad. Why would you not watch any of... You spent 18 years with the guy. Why wouldn't you watch another show? Because I was, at that time, <clears throat> that bitter... At, at how bitter he had become. Your bitterness that you feel never comes out to me in the book. But I didn't feel it when I wrote it. See, that's the cool thing. I was able to to expunge myself and, and find a voice that that resonated so that you you really appreciate his brilliance even further when you realize how screwed up he really was. And is it is it a bad thing to say that this was life, this is how he was? No, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think people deserve to know 
how good a performer he was because that's what he did. He performed, you know, it was like a great actor every night went out and did a great performance. That's what he did. It wasn't him in real life. That's, that's the dichotomy. That's where, that's the disconnect. People think it's got to be the same guy off camera, just witty, charming, jovial, funny. No, often the opposite. So final question, uh, what advice do you have for young attorneys out there who would love to be in a position to move the needle without overseeing a break-in? And what advice do you have for young performers who want to try to make the kind of mark that Johnny made, and once they get there, how they can stay there without all the house of cards falling down. Well, I think, first of all, you have to remember, before Carson got to Tonight Show, he had been working in television and radio and doing stand-up for a long time. You know, so he wasn't a novice. So <laughs> what I did in my career as a young lawyer, I don't know that it's possible to do that again. I don't know that a superstar would go to a three-year lawyer and say, take over my life. Now, it's possible, and, and to those who it may happen to, I say, you got to go for it. You know, you just have to go for it, you know, step up. Now, I didn't think of myself as stepping up. I thought of my, my time with him at those early days as I got to do as good a job as I could do just to have another day. You know, I had no self-confidence whatsoever in the beginning. I just did what I thought I had to do to show him I at least could do something right. And what advice do you have for the performers out there? To the young performer, I would say just you got to do what you got to do. You got to work your ass off, you know, in clubs and bits. And Carson started doing magic shows, you know, started doing magic bits. And he got very good at it. And, and you know, the pattern that you have to have with magic, you got to divert the audience. So he became very good at that, and that became a foundation for radio and for television. I don't know that you could do that today, but if you could, I would do it. I would start as young as you could. I absolutely would. Awesome. This yeah. has been tremendous. I think it's cool. Thank you so much for taking so much time with me. This has My been an pleasure. honor. My pleasure. Did you have fun? Um, I'm, I'm delighted to have been here. All right. I'm delighted to have you. Uh, this is another episode of Industry Standards. And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over so it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.